You may not have heard of Bill Wilson, but you might have experienced or seen his impact in your community. Born in the late 19th century, Bill Wilson, raised in Vermont by a Civil War veteran grandfather, lived an incredibly challenging personal life of biblical-level suffering, only to lay the groundwork to help millions of people for generations yet to come manage their alcohol addiction. This week's BAMP, Pass It On, is the story of Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, and how his life and the struggles that help addicts find support and healing by coming together. Kirk and I walk through this book and are amazed at the perseverance of Bill, the support of his wife Lois, and the serendipity found in the kindness of others. First of all, tell tell our two listeners who Bill Wilson is. Well, Bill Wilson was um, was sorry. Bill Wilson was born in you know, the late late eighteen hundreds and went on with a gentleman by the name of uh, Doctor Bob Smith to found the uh, recovery group uh, association Alcoholics Anonymous. And so this is the story of his life from the beginning to the end and the struggles that they went through in founding AA. Um, just to be clear, this is not um, me nor Kendall. Uh, expressing uh, our views on AA, nor um, saying what's right or wrong with it. Uh, one of the, you know, premises of AA was the, obviously the twelve steps, but also the twelve traditions, and you know, keeping that uh, loose fellowship of men and women together. Um, they needed some guideposts, and one of them is something that everyone in and out of AA should follow, and that's. Um, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but also um, is that the AA group um, should never endorse, finance, or lend the AA name to any facility related outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, or prestige divert them from our primary purpose. And then really it's tradition number 10 that guides uh, conversations about um, Alcoholics Anonymous outside of uh, just private conversations or meetings and such, and that just states that Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. So, if anyone's in the program or associated with the program, um, it's uh, encouraged that they don't speak for AA um, or come from a, um, you know, any viewpoints on that. Just it is an anonymous, uh, and that's what thrives it. Um, that's what allows it to thrive, I should say, in a, in a um, more accurate manner. So, yeah, the story of Bill Wilson starts uh, the 19th century, right? Yeah, so like he was born in the 1890 something. But he's out of Vermont, small town in Vermont. Kind of the book details kind of his early childhood, his struggles. Um, he was a smart kid. Yep, super smart. Lived with his grandfather, which was a he was a Civil War vet. Wow. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? Could you imagine what conversations were on the they, porch? Uh, I know. In Vermont. That's just absolutely nuts. And then I guess he had this girlfriend that he absolutely adored when he was young. Passed away. Died, and he went nutty, they said. For a year, he was super depressed. Um, couldn't get himself out of it. And, uh, but then his his personality, he had that competitive nature. Yes. And as a high school student, 
his athleticism was off the charts. And what it talks about in his early days that I recall, again, you can correct all this, that he wanted to compete and it drove him so much that he always wanted to win. Yep. And that driving led him to be the best and be all that stuff. But then when his girlfriend died, he got so depressed that all his a quality grades and his, he just collapsed. Yeah. Went by the ways. So he failed high school or something. Yeah. He was, uh, he was on his way uh, to failing high school. Um, yeah, I think one of the, one parts of this book it, it details how you know going out for baseball. He just didn't want to be on the team. He wanted to end up being not only the best player but the captain of the baseball team. I mean, that was his drive. You know, to always be the best. And that can you can see that if you know if you're looking for it in this book where he always was super competitive from um, you know the, the things he studied in college and then on to you know his early life in Wall Street and that competitive nature he has um, not to back down or just continuously. And then you can see that come out in his later life when he was working with people in the program uh, that he founded and getting that up and running and, and that never give up attitude. Um, but his, his, his life in Vermont was, he had a kind of like his parents were a little rough right? That situation with his parents. So he went and lived with his grandparents. Yes. And then his, he met his wife was Lois. Was it? Yes. Louise or Lois. I think Lois. And then, um, I mean, she, she, for all accounts was the rock star of rock stars putting up with, um, just regardless of his addiction, it was his, desire, like you said, to be the champion, to be number one. And when he went um, forward, she would say, you know, they're part of their relationships. Let's make sure we don't go to bed angry. You know, that type of, she created some framework of a, of a family for him. Yeah. She kept that whole, yeah, you're right. That's a great way to put it. She kept that whole thing together. Not only, you know, working and a lot of times being the breadwinner of the families, but also the wife, cooking, all that kind of stuff. She provided that framework that allowed him to, you know, in some instances, you know, go crazy with his alcoholism, but in other instances, take that energy and drive into. And that's where he, uh, he went to college, right? And then uh, he was doing really well in college. Um, But then he got real nervous, they said. He started to have like, um, I guess we'll call nervous breakdowns these days. But he freaked out. And so his school, his college days, um, he started to um, experience these withdrawals. And then his grades would suffer based upon these uh, nervous symptoms and stuff. And then uh, I guess he went into the Army, right, in World War One. Yes. And so then he went in as um, an officer. And so a uh, second lieutenant. And that's where he got his first drink, apparently called the Bronx cocktail. Mm -hmm. And that, so he was what, in his twenties or something by that time. And one of the points that they make in the book is um, because of his drive to be number one throughout his life, he mentioned that alcohol stopped the feeling of inferiority. He, um, because he was second or 10th or whatever, he was not number one, that drive to, 
to be the best um, was uh, abated with alcohol, right? Yep. Bill was offered a Bronx cocktail concocted of gin, vermouth, and orange juice. Despite all the warnings, despite all his training, despite all his fears about drinking, he found himself accepting it. Well, my self-conscious was such that I simply had to take that drink, he recalled. So I took it and another one and another one, the miracle. The strong barrier that had existed between me and all men and women seemed to instantly go down. I felt that I belonged where I was, belonged to life. I belonged to the universe. I was a part of things at last. Ah, the magic of those three or four drinks. I became the life of the party. I actually could please the guests. I could talk freely, volubly. I could talk well. I became seriously very attracted to these people and felt into a whole series of dates. But I think even that first evening, I got through thoroughly drunk, and within the next time or two, I passed out completely. <laughs> you wonder how that, that antidote of, of him drinking and, and you know, finding... Um, <clears throat> You know where it put him at ease, and um, it uh, you know made him better looking, more charming, smarter, all that. You think about that. How many people have had that first drink and thought the same exact thing? Invincible. Oh yeah. What's What's crazy about these this book? How he was able to succeed even at the pits of drink. So he went to law school and he did really well in law school. And the two important things with his law school first was to graduate. And the second was to take the bar. Mm -hmm. And the first thing he needed to do was to graduate, but they said he was too drunk to go to his commencement. He didn't get his diploma. He didn't get his diploma. And then he studied and everything for the bar exam and he was too drunk to go to the, take the bar exam. Like, holy cow. Like, he's just like this wealth of intellect. But that one thing prevented him from achieving all of the hard work and studying and stuff. That was fascinating. And then his wife, you know, she's like, what's going on? And obviously, back then, they didn't have these big rehab centers. They thought it was like more of a moral issue you know, curb this, but whatever. And then, you know, this is happening during prohibition. So here he is with his wife. They have pretty much nothing. But apparently when he started to understand Wall Street through his studies and stuff like that, he started to figure out, hey, maybe I can do some research on the companies before you buy the stock. So that was unheard of. Right. And so he was one of the pioneers that actually did homework. So him and his wife apparently got in a motorcycle with a sidecar. Yeah, and they drove and drove and into this cold area. And she's like, you know, she's like a rock star. She's like, let's do it. And so she goes to where General Electric was or something. Mm-hmm. And they go and live on a farm just so he can go get research to learn about the stocks of the company. And they go to this farm because they can pay for people to be farmhands. But like they took one look at him and they're like, yeah, you ain't going to do Jack. (laughs) (laughs) 
but they like they were earning like just enough money to get the food so he could go do his research. Yep. Just get, and they uh, lived in horrible conditions. Yeah. And yes. she just stuck with him. That was a fascinating part about her loyalty and her oh, dedication nice. to yes. that guy. Yeah, absolutely. And and that goes all the way throughout the book. And uh, it also brings up a really interesting point as far as, you know, his chosen profession of being, you know, uh, on Wall Street. The research that they did in those days, you know, there's no internet and computers, obviously, back then. And and um, the communication was nowhere near. And so you went to the company and ensconced yourself in there and asked a bunch of questions and, you know, Versus what they do today is, you know, there are still some visits, of course, and there's still some, you know, interaction in person between like Wall Street analysts from yeah. big firms and companies. Most of it's done now by, you know. Yeah, he would show up. He said, I'm a shareholder. Yeah. I, I want to know what's going on. And they're like, yeah. oh, wow, okay. Yeah. And, he and they would stay just weeks. And then, he, yeah, he'd stay weeks. Yeah. We'll and then he out. would be able to bring the research back to his firms and stuff. And then they started to see he was a drinker. Yeah. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) And that's where you start to realize, like, when the crash came, you wonder the dynamics of his relationship with his wife, Mm. where they talk about his drinking was so bad in New York that he would go to work in Manhattan and they were making pretty good money back then. And he would have a like $500 and they say that he had 500 bucks. He'd leave that cause the market's closed at three. He would walk home passing all the bars. And they said he got to the point where he had to crawl under the subway ticket because he was out of money <laughs> and his doorman. Did you hear about his doorman? No, he got in such a good relationship with his doorman. That if he didn't come home by like one o'clock, his doorman knew he had to go find go him. Go looking for him. Is that amazing? And then his wife was like, oh boy. <laughs> this isn't a good sign. Anyway, so that, when I started to think about Lois's um, loyalty to him. And then when you think like, when you're looking at it through the lens of, um, here's this guy that has an unbelievable uh, toolbox of talents and skills. For example, one of the skills he had is he wanted to um, help Edison. Yeah. And he goes and he f- applies to this competition. And he said that Edison was actually sitting in the corner watching the students take the test. And he said, it was one of the hardest tests I ever took. Right. And they got a, he got a letter from Edison and then he, Edison accepted him and he turned him down. And so you you just you just wonder like where this guy could have gone in in a way that socially so here's here's kind of the, the fork in the road I think um, with with his story so far is if he with these amount of skills and abilities he could have taken the creation of wealth you know, material wealth Mm -hmm. and brought it through to the point where, you know, he would have, he would have lived the New York city lifestyle. Right. But his problem inhibited that. Right. But it didn't necessarily stop his drive. So his benefit, if he, if he did not have that inhibition, 
his benefit would have helped him and his immediate family, right? Or let's say generations, he donated money or something. However, because he had this inhibition, he goes the other way. He struggles completely. His family is suffering. But what comes out of his life legacy is to the point has saved generations of families and generations. So the suffering he went through personally, the sacrifices and everything that his wife took and everything relative to the impact of his life, it, it's almost like that suffering was worth it. Oh yeah. I mean, there's no, not, maybe not to him and his wife, no, at the but time, to generations. But, maybe, but you know, later in life in hindsight, it was probably worth it. But when you're going through it, it certainly doesn't seem like it, but yeah, I mean, it's a great point. Kind of what happens if, if uh first time he tried to get sober or, he had to de- even deliver one of those reports when he was doing the research. He always had to wait till the last minute. And he was, you know, it was messed up. Um, what happens if he stopped drinking in that moment, got that done, and figured out a way to do it by himself, and then and never went through the struggles that ended up helping, like you said, literally millions of people, generations of people. So yeah, it's, those were like seeds that, if you were to measure it. It's tough to measure it in his lifespan. If you were just to look at his life, right, you would say, wow, he really had a hard life. But if you were to look at it as a whole, you would have an, a, a, an appendix. Yes, he had a hard life, but the outcome of his hard life mm-hmm. has continuously supported uh, millions of people, right? So that, I think, if you're measuring life in a different way versus just, you know, the 70 or so years he lived. How old did, yeah, how old did he end up I think being? in his late 70s. I think he died in 1971, so I think it was late 70s. Okay, so he left New York. What happened What what happened after that? Like the crash happened, right? Right. In 29, and then he was struggling a lot for that, and he had a lot of friends. Um, One of the things is one of his friends says, he was awful. He was an alcoholic, but I liked him. He was one of the brightest stock analysts on Wall Street. There were a lot of analysts around, but they didn't know what in the hell they were doing. Bill was a very thorough man. I admired him and liked him. He was brilliant, and I helped him along. You know, he used to get awfully drunk in front of our 50 Broad uh, Street, and a couple of boys and myself would go down, pick him up. I had a big office, and we put him on the couch and let him dry out. You know, it, it just goes to show you that people recognized this guy was special and they were willing to put up with the fact that, you know, he was completely drunk. There's another anecdote in here where he uh, was going to a small airport. I don't know if you read that part. He's going to a small airport in Vermont Mm -hmm. and they've never seen a plane before. And he was like the celebrity in the whole town came out (laughs) and then he, he was so toasted. He fell out of the plane when it landed. And he was so embarrassed. And you wonder, like, how do you recover from that? And he just said he was mortified. But because he was such a great guy, people are like, yeah, don't worry about it. They looked past it. They looked past it. And that's a blessing into itself, you know. I mean, he had to be real charismatic and at some level caring before, you know, in his early days for people to be so drawn to him, being such a drunk, but he was just an absolute genius in what he did. Uh, even with all the sabotaging he did, he still um, 
seemed to be able to get jobs. I mean, people were, you know, into what he was trying to do. And the, the, um, he knew, which was interesting, right? He knew he, uh, he had a lot of drinking issues. Like it wasn't to the point where he was, um, yeah, it's no big deal. Like he would write notes in his, uh, family Bible to his wife that they have dated in it that said, um, uh, this time I kicked it this time I kicked it. And so there were little notes in the family Bible that his wife would read and they, he had them like, like almost like a timeline. So it was first note in like September, 1927. Mm-hmm. I kicked it October, 1927. Now I kicked it. <laughs> and it was just like a list. And this poor guy was like, I promise it's all. And his wife's like, yep, I believe him. I believe him. I believe him. And then, you know, all of these people started to um, started to say that it's just too much. They couldn't take it anymore. You know, falling asleep. And, and um, one time him and his wife were out on a trip and he said, oh, I got to go pick something up. And she was left in the lurch for an hour. It was like it's some sort of um, like getting on the airplane mm-hmm. or getting on a train or something. And he says, yeah, let me go get the tickets. And she's sitting there for an hour. She's like, what the? And she goes and looks and there he is in the bar with like no shoes on. He's like, Hey, (laughs) what are you doing here? And then she just sticks with him. She just kept putting up with it. And you just, you're, you're like, Holy cow. So there must've been something incredibly special uh, to that guy for sure. Yeah. I mean, and they definitely had a bond between the two of them uh, for her to, to go through all the stuff that she went through and, uh, still, you know, stand by his side, you know, and that's when he starts coming into, you know, comp, you know, and, um, connection with other problem drinkers or other people that were drinking. And, and then her, she would have a job. Yes. Like, because she knew that his, he would get fired all the time. Was, so she would work at, I think it was Macy's for she just a department to, store. Yeah. Just, just to keep them stable. And it wasn't like he would just lose the job. He would lose whatever savings they had with it. You know, he'd he'd wipe it all out. He'd wipe it all out. But he even said he signed everything over to her because he knew he wasn't going to trust himself. Anyways, so he's in New York. Pick it up from there. So he goes, does he move back to Vermont or something? Do you remember what happens? Yeah, he's in New York and he comes into um, contact with... uh, you know, Abby and some people that were working um, along with the uh, Oxford Group, which was, you know, an association of self-help, you know, uh, religious orders. and um, That was in New York. Abby was in New York? Yes. Yeah. And that was kind of the precursor to the program he followed and, uh, you know, founded. And so... Um, it says it was like a tourist camp or something, right? Yeah, it was, um, it was like a... And then a family home or whatever? Family home, and, and then it was, um, was it, they also had like, um, I, I don't want to misquote it, but like uh, they had some like, you know, like self-help or guidance. Yeah, it says thing. it was really more of a spiritual thing. Yeah, that, where people would come and, you know, and like a retreat, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they would. Um, and so that's where he met some of those people there, um, where he got the original, you know, the uh, the foundation of what, 
the Oxford group become. teachings or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, and then and they also um they took a lot of what the Oxford group, you know, and, and carried that forward. Uh, some of them uh, they didn't agree with. Um, there was then um, at the, the four, you know, the four absolutes. It's honesty, purity, love, and unselfishness uh, were the four guiding principles that uh, that they abounded by uh, in the Oxford group. And uh, there were some, they had some differences um, with um, what uh, the Oxford, you know, uh, the strict as the Oxford group was, I believe, at the time. And but one of the turning points was when his friend Abby, who was a you know heavy drinker, also came to talk to him. Um, it was about a year after he had seen him, and you know it was just amazing. He didn't really recognize him, and Abby was you know um, had he, he said he had gotten religion, you know, and and uh, he'd become you know sober. Um, you know, practicing the, you know, the, with the Oxford group. So there's Dr. Silkworth. Right. And Abby. Yes. And so they said this bill was suicidal at that time. Mm -hmm. And this, um, they essentially said he had a spiritual experience or whatever. In the hospital, I believe it was at, I think the hospital was in New York and, um, he was, he was suicidal, he was depressed. And then he started, he started, feeling like, I think it was like things coming over his body. I think he saw the curtains move. And, um, and that's when the Dr. Silk work started, you know, he writes, he actually writes the intro to the big book. Um, in the doctor's opinion, it's the first, um, it, kind of description of the malady that alcoholics suffer and what. And that must've come right from that experience, right? right when he was yeah. in that, um, hell. And so that's when the, you know, the, there's a spiritual aspect to, uh, the program and to how to, you know, what's the best way to recover? How can you recover? And so Dr. Silkworth, uh, was working with Abby and, um, I think I don't want to quote the year, um, in the fifties is when he, uh, Part of his journey to Akron's book had worked with hard with many alcoholics and the theory that an alcoholic it says uh Silkworth said to Bill Bill was always grateful for Silkworth's answer. Yes, my boy, you are sane, perfectly sane in my judgment. You have been the subject of some great psychic occurrence, something that I don't understand. I've read of these things in the books, but I've never seen one for myself. You have had some kind of conversion experience. You are a different individual. So whatever you got, hold on to it. It's so much better than whatever you had a couple hours ago. So that Silkworth was saying, hey, whatever, you know, enlightenment, like on the road to Damascus kind of thing, <laughs> right? He whatever was like, is, holy crap. Hang on to it. Hang on to it. And that so that's where I think, and it says, like, how did Lois, his wife, respond to his new condition, Right. When she came home and found his note saying that he had gone back to town, she was angry. Who was going to pay the bill? What good would it do anyways? He would just get drunk again in the minute he left. So that's where her thoughts as she rode the subway into towns. Her questions were answered, she said, the minute she saw him. I knew something overwhelming had happened. His eyes were filled with light. His whole being expressed hope and joy. From that moment on, I shared his confidence in the future. That lady's a rock star. Yeah, she absolutely is. 
Absolutely. And, and so that's where the, that's the one component of the two components that, you know, they eventually expound on in the program, but it's that, you know, the need for a, you know, a psychic change or spiritual. Well, that's experience. what he said. He says it's like a gift of grace, right. On the, on the mountaintop or whatever. Yes. And it's, um, you know, he had his within a, whatever, an hour, 15 minute span, wherever that was. And, um, you know, they're, goes on with, you know, there's people that have that gradually over time. And I think at one point, Dr. Silkworth encouraged him to, you know, explain, you know, that he has a different outlook on life, but not necessarily get into the exact details of what gotcha. happened to, to him. Because um, not everyone's going to have that same, you know, strike of lightning that'll change and they'll be yep. waiting for it. And sometimes it just happens. So you know, I see what you're gradually. saying. So every you don't want to set that carrot out and say you have to get the carrot before you'll experience this. Right. Like you, that that's where I think that um, that was pretty sage wisdom for him to was, admonish that. No, it was super sage because um, not everyone will go through the same thing. And um, he says, at this moment, my excitement became boundless. A chain of reaction could be set in motion, forming an ever-growing fellowship of alcoholics whose mission it would be to visit the caves of still other suffering and set them free as each dedicated himself to carrying the message to another and those released to others, such a society could pyramid to tremendous proportions. Why it could reach every single alcoholic in the world capable of being honest enough to admit his own defeat. Visionary words and very prophetic. And that is his gift was his energy and his passion Mm -hmm. And now it's channeled into something like this, right? Instead of channeling yeah. in him to buying more shares of a company, it was channeling into uh, helping people. So if you go through, then, the, you know, once he's in Akron, really the, what they consider. The okay, so he's in New York. He goes right. to this thing in, where was it, in, in the hills or something, in this mountains, this Ebby group? or Yeah, so he's with Ebby, yes. So where, yeah, so it's Calvary Episcopal Mission on 23rd Street in New York. So then he goes, so how does he get to Akron? How does he get to Ohio? I didn't see that. He's, uh, I think he's on a business trip uh, in Akron, and um, he was, um, I think, stuck in Akron. And then it's it, during a talk between a New York stockbroker and an Akron physician, so he, Dr. Bob, was set up, you know, with him. Who's Dr. Bob? Dr. Bob is the co-founder of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. So he is at this meeting after he has this spiritual experience in Akron? Yes. So yeah. he, so Bill Wilson's sitting somewhere in Akron, and he is he, like, trying to spread the good news, or is he, like— um, like, how did that meeting happen? And so he has, he has discovered that, you know, the, for him, the way that, that he um, would help him get through a day was talking to another alcoholic. Okay, so, so he, let me understand that. So he has a spiritual experience. He's in New York City. His wife says something's changed with this guy. Right. What is he doing now? Is he working or is he, like, just wanting to spread the message, you know? No, I think he's still working because that's how he ends up in Akron. On a trip. I got you. Okay, got okay. it. And so um, he's in the, the Mayflower Hotel. I think it's in downtown Akron. Uh, he's walking. You know, he, he doesn't want to go into the bar there. So he's calling people to try to, um, find, you know, get a hold of an alcoholic to talk on the payphone in the lobby. And then he, um, 
I believe gets a hold of the Cyberling, um, uh, the Firestone family, and through connections, and she's who sets him up with you know Doctor Bob, and, and Doctor Bob was a uh, an, a doctor in the Akron area, and was, yeah, they say the Ox group, Oxford group was in Akron. That's what I thought was interesting was um, he must have. Uh, in the early days of his existence, the movement was called the First Century Fellowship. In the late 30s, Dr. Bob, co-founder of AA and other, and the other Akron, Ohio members continued to refer it that way. It became the Oxford Group in 1928 and was renamed Moral Reinarm and was renamed Moral Rearmament, MRA, in 1938. Although Bill placed the origin of the Oxford group at about 1920, the seed had actually go to one page 130. Um, although Bill placed the origin of the Oxford group at about 1920, the seed had actually been planted in 1908 with Frank Buchanan, a native of Allentown, Pennsylvania, underwent a remarkable spiritual transformation. Buchanan, who had been running a home for orphan bows in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Resigned following a bitter dispute with his trustees. Buchanan served as YMCA secretary for a time. According to William Hunter, a close associate, Buchanan was a physically unattractive. <laughs> right, where's the freaking Buchanan himself was never interested specifically in helping alcoholics. Although in Akron, for instance, the Oxford group was known from its start as a program that could work with drunks. But as Buchanan put, I'm all for the drunks being changed, but we also have drunken nations on our hands. At the time the Wilsons were starting going to meetings, the Oxford group was on the crest of public opinion and notice. In those early days of 1935, Bill Wilson preached the Oxford group message to anyone who would listen. This is good. Mm-hmm. He spent long hours at, he spent long hours at Calvary Mission at a town's where Dr. Silkworth and the rest of his professional reputation give, gave Bill permission to talk with some of the patients. Burning with confidence and enthusiasm, I pursued alcoholics morning, noon, and night, Bill recalled. You see that? Mm-hmm. Not the lure of Wall Street diverted him from his new crusade. Though I made a few feeble efforts to get a job, these were soon forgotten in the excitement of the chase. Lois went on working in her department store, content with my new mission in the world. Again, rock star. She had taken the job at Lusher's because it was not far from Clinton Street. There, the household grew to three. Abby moved in for the first time. He eventually became an almost permanent guest. In these exciting months of new sobriety, Bill did not recognize that, along with his sincere desire to help other alcoholics and to create something new, another motive was working in him. You pick it up from there. Mangled, you see that? Yeah. What do you? What page are you on? One thirty-one. Yeah. Um, mingled with his humanitarian instincts and his spirituality was the same driving ambition that had created Vermont's only boomerang maker. As Bill himself described it, I was soon heard to say I was going to fix up all the drunks in the world, even though the batting average on them had been virtually nil for the last five thousand years. The Oxford Groupers had. Tried, had mostly failed, and were fed up. 
Sam Shoemaker, who in fact had just had a, a run of bad luck. He had housed a batch of drunks in an apartment near his church, and one of them, still resisting salvation, had peevishly thrown a shoe through a fine stained glass window in Sam's church. No wonder my Foxwood, Oxford group's friends felt I had a better forget about alcoholics. But I, still, um, but I was still mighty cocksure and ignored their advice. Mine was a kind of twin-engine power drive consisting of one part of genuine spirituality and one part of my old desire to be a number one man again. This posture didn't pan out well at all. At the end of six months, nobody had sobered up, and believe me, I had tried them by the score. They would clear up a little while and then flop dismally. Naturally, the Oxford groupers became very cool indeed toward my drunk fixing. That's got to be tough. Mm-hmm. It, it, nobody had gotten sober, and he had, you know, countless times, and he thought he, for sure, sharing his spiritual experience and the fact that he could do it, that that would translate, and it wasn't. And he was, they were getting super frustrated, and so was, so was he. And that's where he even says that there was multiple groups trying to solve this issue, mm-hmm. and they were kind of tripping on each other, and it started to get political, right? That's where, you know, like, all these um, Bill learned about a proxy fight for control of a small machine tool company in Akron. That's how he ended up. That's in how he acted. I got gotcha. you. It was and it was like a quasi business trip to kind of rekindle his career, um, and so he is familiar with the the proxy battles, and so he took a train to Akron. Although he had no money, <laughs> no. And I think it even says Lois was back working at the department store at the time. Yeah. And the firm was National Rubber Machinery Company, builder of rubber curing presses and other equipments used in tire manufacturing. Founded in 1909 as Akron Rubber Mold and Machine Company. It had been reorganized in 1928 and combined with three other companies. Yeah, and so as for Bill, he had one overriding objective, to rebuild his shattered career. Success in the proxy fight could restore his standing on Wall Street. Sobriety and success could mean a new, comfortable life for the Wilsons. Lois could leave the department store forever. Coming when it did, this opportunity must have seemed heaven sent for him. So then describes that, you know, he, he gets on a, a, a train uh, to Akron. And um, he was only 39 years old at that time. The fight was almost over. Bill and his associates were confident that they had enough proxies and sufficient shares in beer accounts to take control of the company. A quick vote, accounting of the results, and then in a hasty organization meeting, immediately afterwards, Bill Wilson would become an officer in the new management company. Lois could finally leave her job at Lozier's department store. So then this one man, so we're in Akron, right? That's essentially what... uh, He's still there. Mm-hmm. And so he's trying to get on the board here, right? This book says, page they, 136. They pulled a maneuver on him, and, and he didn't. Uh, his partners, I think, went back to New York. I got you. Um, they said they were trying to get the names. Bill balked at the idea of calling Mrs. Uh, Cyberger, I'm on 136. Yeah, so Cyberling. Bill, um, he, he was looking for somebody to talk to to stay out of the bar in the, in the hotel, in the lobby. Okay, and this is in Akron. This is in Akron. He'd called 10 people. I believe he got the names from a pastor in got Akron. It. 
So he called out 10 without getting the name of a single drunk. By one, But one man, Norman Shepard, knew a woman named Henrietta Cyberling and even knew of the effort she had been making to help a certain friend. I have to go to New York to entertain tonight, but you can call Henrietta Cyberling, Shepard told Bill. Henrietta Cyberling was a descendant or a, I think the wife of one of the Firestones. Got it. Um, and she was living in the caretaker's cottage at the front of the Cyberling estate, which is today Stan Hewitt Hall. Got it. And because they were getting divorced or there's something to that uh, effect. And so uh, Bill balked at the idea of calling Mrs. Cyberling. The name was known to him and he was afraid of it. It was the name of the Good Goodyear, not Firestone, my bad, Goodyear rubber people. Bill believed that Henrietta was the wife of Frank Cyberling, an entrepreneur who had built the Goodyear company and, after losing control of that firm, um, later formed the tire company bearing his name. Bill had even met um, Henrietta's husband, Frank Cyberling, during the Halicone years on Wall Street, and he remembered it. I could hardly imagine calling up his wife and telling her here that I was a, a drunk from New York looking for ah. another drunk to work on. <laughs> Good Lord. That would have been awkward. So at this point, he's now pacing up and down the lobby. Um, and this and is in the hotel. In the hotel. In he Akron. He doesn't want to go into the bar. He wants to stay What's sober. the hotel? I think is it, it still Mayflower. there? Yeah, it's, the building is still there. Yeah. Um, so it just says, to go on and say, continue to pace up and down the lobby. Something kept telling him to call Mrs. Cyberling. He went back to his room and placed the call. Henrietta Cyberling was not Frank Cyberling's wife. She was the daughter-in-law. So she was actually the... Distant for, or, you know, one generation off the yeah, founder. But she, yeah, and she was, they were separated, I believe. And I that's why um, she could not live in the grand 65 room um, Cyberling mansion on Portage Path. She lived there with her three young children in the guest house. Her husband, for whom she was separated, lived in the mansion with his parents. Got it. So um, he had it wrong, and it was ended up being the daughter in law, which ended up being perfect for him. And then, um, you know, as Henrietta later tells it, Bill introduced himself over the telephone like this. I am from the Oxford group and I am a rum hound from New York. Well, that's the name. That was the uh, term they would call. Drunks, yeah. Rum hounds. Her silent reaction, she said, was, this is really mana from heaven. Aloud, she said, "Um, you come right out here. It would seem remarkable that a woman alone with three teenage children would be so quick to invite a strange man into her home, but there was a strong bond of trust among Oxford group members. And so uh, Henrietta relied upon God's guidance in her life. She was certain that that telephone call was the help um, she and other Oxford group members have been seeking for for one of their members. Only a few weeks earlier, the man had finally admitted to the group that he was a secret drinker and Henrietta believed that a result of his honesty, he would um, help would come for him in some form, some way. This visitor from New York might be the very help. And so that's where he meets with uh, Dr. Bob and Dr. Bob, you know, famously Henrietta got a hold of him and he said, Oh, you know, I don't want to meet. Okay. So wait a second. So Henrietta knows this Dr. Bob guy. He just told them in an Oxford group meeting that I'm secretly struggling with alcohol. Got it. Hence the anonymous. Yes. So when she, you know, because he's a physician in the community, and so if they find out he's a drunk, he's finished. But also, it's like she's thinking this is mana from heaven. Um, This guy's embarrassed to call because so she wasn't. She wasn't a rum hound. No, her friend was. Her friend was in the Oxford group, and so so mana from heaven was this 
Bill Wilson calling phone call. Just out of the blue. There it is. Hey, I need to talk to and another And she drone. instantly thought of this Dr. Bob. And she's like, oh, my God, this is a, this is a godsend. Here's this God. guy calling. I know exactly who to put, put in contact with. And says, when Bill arrived, she made a telephone call to a man she had in mind. The man's name was Dr. Robert Smith. He was a physician. He was an alcoholic. And he was in a, um, desperate straits. After some telephone conversation with Ann, Dr. Bob's wife, it became obvious that help would have to be delayed. It was delayed uh, the day before Mother's Day, and the man had just come home bearing a potted plant for his wife, then potted himself. He had promptly passed out. So the meeting between the two men was arranged for the next afternoon, Mother's Day, in the gatehouse of the Cyberling Mansion. In retrospect, it all seems as though it had been divinely ordained. Even the locale, even the locale was symbolic. The mansion was called Stan Hewitt Hall, a Welsh name that means rock is found here. That's that's creepy. And, and, it's, and you can stand Hewitt. <laughs> the Stan Hewitt Hall is now like uh, in Akron. It's a, it's a museum, I believe, and where people can go. They have proms there, big dinners, events there. It's beautiful. They do gotcha. all sorts of stuff. And that gatehouse also has um, some room in there where you can go and sit where Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson originally met. And oh. they have some signposts and kind of, you know, talk about it. And I, I think that original meeting was like he, Dr. Bob said, I'll give you 15 minutes. And they ended up talking. I don't want to, I think it was like six hours or something crazy amount. That So he says he was, this Dr. Bob was 55 mm-hmm. and Bill was 39. Right. They're both from Vermont. And so you're saying that he wouldn't, he didn't really care for this Bill Wilson guy. Well, he, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't really apt for the idea of sitting out and just, you know, talking about his alcoholism with a stranger. Makes sense. And um, so this hesitation and the, you know, the reason they f- first couldn't meet um, was he brought his wife home a potted plant and then passed out. Yeah. Just so she thought he was going to, it was going to be a special night or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so that that's where those two met. And that's where the whole original idea of, of, you know, the name of this book and, and the, the AA premise of, you know, in order to um, keep your sobriety, you have to give it away. You have to pass it along. And yeah. What does that mean exactly for what, why did he think was that like he coined that just knowing that would keep him sober as if he earnestly tried to pass along the gift that he had been given to another drunk and um, it it's a weird thing, but that's the 12th step of that program. And, and what they're saying here is that, um, you know, all of the people that he'd brought through that Oxford group in New York, not one of them stayed sober except for him. So the, it worked that 12th step worked, even though no one else got sober, it worked for him. So they, so Bill at that meeting, Bill Wilson was, Sober as a church mouse or whatever, right? Yeah. And then Dr. Bab, like, go to 143. I love I love that page. Look at where it says Dr. Bob later. There. Uh, Dr. Bob later said he could not remember ever feeling much worse than he did in the afternoon he met Bill. He had agreed to the meeting only because he was very fond of Henrietta and Anne, his wife, had already committed them to going. 
but he had made Anne promise that they would not, they would only stay for 15 minutes. I didn't want to talk to this young, to this mug or anybody else, and we'd really make it snappy. Accompanied by their 17-year-old son, Bob, the Smiths arrived, uh, their 17-year-old son named Bob, the Smiths arrived at Stan Hewitt Gatehouse at 5 o'clock. Bob announced immediately that he could only stay briefly. Though embarrassed, he brightened a little when I said I thought he needed a drink, Bill recalled. After dinner, which he did not eat, Henrietta discreetly put us off in the little library. There, Bob and I talked until 11 o'clock. So they talked, they were there for five hours. Jeez. And he wanted, you know, he, he just was not in the mood. He was hungover. He wanted to talk to this guy from New York. He didn't want to talk to anybody. And then... As was common practice in the day, when somebody is hungover or you know not drunk yet, they were shaky, they were jittery, they were miserable, and the common thing was you always had alcohol to give them to calm their nerves yeah, so they like could talk. Yeah, the dog kind of thing. Yeah, every house that um, welcomed alcoholics in at the time had alcohol in it to give them to calm their nerves. Oh, wow. Um, or they would just, you know, back then they didn't know this, they did know the severity, but it was... You know, the, sure. the shaking and all that. Worse, yeah, it's like lesser of two evils. Kind of yeah. Um, and then it just says, you know, what caused Dr. Bob to stay for the evening instead of fleeing as planned? Well, to begin with, he quickly realized that this Bill Wilson knew what he was talking about. Dr. Bob had read a great deal about alcoholism and, and had heard the opinions of a few fe- of fellow professionals who had treated alcoholics. But Bill was the first person he had talked to who knew from his own experience what alcoholism was. Alcoholism was. In other words, he talked my language, said Bob. He knew all the answers, and certainly not because he'd picked them up in his reading. And that's the whole, one of the premises of this book is, is that um, two alcoholics talking together is by far the most effective way. Um, I gotcha. So, like, he was reading assuming he could fix it from, it's kind of like trying to learn how to swim from a book. Totally. You can't, you can't do that. And Dr. Bobbitt, you know, talked to some of his fellow physicians who had read about alcoholism in a book and nothing was clicking with him. And then Bill sits down with him and explains his story of what he had gone through. And Dr. Bob says, yeah, that's kind of what I'm experiencing. Same exact thing. So when did they go from there? What happens? Like, what happens in Akron? That's what's interesting, I think, is. So what happens is, I believe next is that um, uh, Dr. Silkworth encourages those two to continue, and Lois comes to stay in Akron and comes and they move into the the Smith's house. And um, that's where they begin... um, you know, still with the Oxford group, but still, and then they start going, you know, there's they're still an Oxford group in Akron. And they still go out and, and uh, do that, but they also um, are kind of the, laying the foundation of what the program will be. Um, and then they didn't have, it says here that they, um, uh, they basically thought it was a great idea and then Bill Wilson lost his first sober attempt, right? And that's what I think it shows that he fell. Mm -hmm. And then the passing on, like you're saying, the message um, 
that a small group of alcoholics began recovering. You know, a nameless bunch of drunks essentially was separated from the Oxford group. And there was like a custom group that, um, that was created. But then they were, and that's where uh, the money thing, like getting investments and all that stuff was a big deal where it, I guess they reached out to Rockefeller Jr. Um, what, won't money spoil this thing? He was so prophetic at the, I mean, the, the one thing that rock, a couple things are going on. One is there's a Oxford group in New York and one in Akron and some um, disagreements that happened in New York and they had broke from the Oxford group. And so, so did the, the, the group in Akron Rockefeller. They thought Rockefeller could, um, you know, lend them some money yeah. to get up and running, start hospitals and clinics. Um, and then also some literature to pass out. And that's when he famously says, you know, won't, money spoiled this whole thing and and which happened to be you know really um not only insightful but it laid the groundwork of how aa is run today and there was you know he, i think he eventually ended up lending them a small amount of money um to get things started uh for living expenses and stuff like that um but never the grand amount um that was you know originally that they built that like you say that was prophetic right it was huge because it, and there was other attempts to, you know, raise funds, you know, to, to, um, to publish the first big book and with the publisher and, 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 uh, some of the things that they wanted him to do, they ended up breaking out and doing it themselves. Yeah. It says here, um, he recommended, somebody recommended a total sum of 50,000 for the early work. Though far short of the millions Bill had envisioned, it was nonetheless a princely sum in 1938. Too much money could spoil the work, someone said. John Rockefeller agreed. He also agreed that both Bill and Dr. Bob deserved some financial help, particularly since the mortgage had to be paid off on the Smith's house. He consented to place $5,000 for their use in the treasury of Riverside Church with Richardson and his associates to allocate the funds. He also expressed the opinion that the movement should soon become self-supporting. And you and the others do not, if you and the others do not happen to agree if you really think that the movement needs money, of course, you can help them to raise it. But please don't ever ask me for any more. Huh. No, and I think that's, um, there are other separate episodes throughout the history of AA where separate groups have tried to raise a large amount of funds to start fancy hospitals, rehab centers, and Ultimately, um, control and governance and money always gets in the way of recovery. And that's, yeah. And it, he says that um, while the foundation had little money and virtually no authority over its groups, it gave the movement a legally formed New York-based center. It also served as a fundraising unit for the book project. The Alcoholic Foundation, with its trustees and its slender financial resource, was small potatoes next to Bill's dream of an alcoholic's hospitals and paid missionaries. But the effort to raise money had at least resulted in the beginnings of a structure for the movement. Bill and Dr. Bob had already began to think seriously about what kind of book would be best publicizing the program. It would be a book about their own personal experience. It would tell them what they had done to keep themselves sober, and it would help others in the process. So that's where the whole money issue is, is right, is not to take corporate sponsors, not to take, it was right around the days of Rockefeller basically saying, 
the money would spoil this. Right. And then they do this big book and this big book, it says like, um, this, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, nobody bought the books apparently. No, they're like 5,000 in inventory. Nobody, not one had been sold or they couldn't give them away at the time. So the passing on message, they got excited behind it. The two guys out of the Akron, out of the Stan Hewitt Hall, got excited about the message, wants to go get a big hospital, big funding and all that other fun stuff. Goes to Rockefeller. His team says, won't it spoil? Won't money spoil it? He gives them a tiny bit of money just to get them stable, but don't come back for money. So they figure out how to make this big book called Alcoholics Anonymous. It's written by Bill, edited by a group. The organization's first public information effort um, gives the group a name and concise recovery program in 12 steps. Book sales are nil. Bill and Lois are homeless. There she is again, just... Sticking with her man. Yeah, she moved from New York uh, to Akron and moved in with uh, the Wilson. And it's, there's nobody buying the book. And then, um, so they borrow $1,000 to keep AA afloat. And then uh, Bill keeps reaching out, looking for some goals, a job, a home of his own. Um, but he's starting trying to restore uh, personal relationships. and. Um, Father Ed Dowling's spiritual sponsorship would eventually give Bill a new insight into divine thirst. But then they finally got on the map, right, with the Saturday Evening Post, and they put an article, um, put CAA on the map, and uh, his correspondence shapes the attitudes that became a part or integral part of the AA program. And especially the big, bitter experience uh, that they had as the growth opportunity, right? Yeah. And then, you know, one of the, it talks about the book and, and one of the precursors uh, to writing all that down and uh, a useful way to share the message. Um, they started, you know, the, all of them, Ann uh, and Lois and Bill and Bob, it started, you know, talking about putting it um in writing, they heavily relied upon the Bible. Um, and that's primarily where they got a lot of the stuff from the Oxford group and then, you know, sharing in the big book. And so some of the foundations of what they were uh, you know, um, going to write in the book came from the Bible. And they were, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. They looked at the um, 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians uh, and then the book of James. The book of James was considered so important uh, in fact, that some of the early members had suggested that it would be called the St. James Club as the name of the fellowship uh, that eventually become became AA. And that's where, you know, the, the famous, you know, phrase, you know, faith without works is dead. So it's, you know. That was the pass it on message. It's yep. like you have to work to pass on the message. You have to show your faith by your actions, not just, you know, profess them quietly in a room by yourself. Um, and so... It goes on to, to, so what was the founding date of, uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, from this book is um, they were in Akron. He had to go to uh, an AMA convention, Dr. Bob did. This is in 1935 in the spring in May. And uh, Ann didn't really want him to go because he had never 
gone there and not just got totally hammered and uh, come home a mess. Uh, he went anyway. He was drunk uh, by the time he got on the train, drank the whole time, came back. And um, he was, you know, with Bill, he and Bill, had, it, you know, um, uh, he had surgery. He came home. He was so jittery. They sobered him up and uh, he had a big surgery at the hospital, I believe. And he went to the hospital. They're all nervous whether what was going to go on and how it came out. And they were expecting him back at the house. And, uh, you know, he, uh, before he got home, he decided that, you know, he'd, he'd already told the Oxford group that he was a, uh, a secret drinker, you know, and he admitted his problem. He also went and saw a few people that he needed to make amends to and, pay, you know, talked to some creditors that he'd, you know, avoided um, for years. And that, you know, freely admitting that he had a problem was the first step in, in the program that they would end up finding. Gotcha. And then they came home, and I think he had one beer that night and then the next day uh he was sober and stayed sober and that was the june 10th 1935 and so one alcoholic passing on the message to another alcoholic that stayed sober we consider that the the founding of the program was in june 10th 1935 and that's all based in akron now they have those founders day every year where people come from all over the world to celebrate june june 10th Bill Sledgehammer campaign. Um, so they did, like you're saying, there's those principles that he came up with, right? 12 traditions. Right. Um, and that's where Dr. Bob agreed to those or how that worked. Right. So was Dr. Bob still working? I didn't see that in this. Like he was still a doctor and all. Yeah, he was still a doctor. So the- Bill was essentially the champion of this. Yes. I gotcha. But he was living in his house, the Smith's house. He was living, they both were living in the Smith's house. I believe he was still a doctor at the Akron Hospital. Um, and they both were going out and, and championing it and, and uh, trying to pass along what they had experienced. Um, and then, you know, as, as smaller groups started to join and uh, people started, you know, getting sober one by one. Um, that's when they, you know, they started that they'd have to have some type of, not governance, but more, you know, a structure around what they were doing, which each group would be autonomous, um, uh, only if, you know, together, if it relates to the AA as a whole. And that's where the 12 traditions come in. And then, so, um, so now tell me a little bit about the serenity prayer, right? So is this a part of AA? Like it talks about this on 252? Yeah, it was, it was, a, a, uh, it was a, a obituary written in New York, from my understanding. Yeah, it says um, in memorandum or in, in memoriam column of an early ni- uh, June 1941 edition of New York Herald Tribune. The exact wording was the serenity prayer. So somebody had the idea of printing it onto cards and per, and paid for the first printing. Another example of the way Bill's philosophy worked out through the letters appeared that he wrote, there have been a number of slips this summer among AAs who have been dry two or three years. Naturally, these episodes have brought a lot of worry to the families involved who find the old nightmare revived. Yet, I do not know any case but that has, in a sense, benefited. These occurrence, 
these occurrences simply serve notice on all of us that no one is ever really cured of alcoholism. Yeah. I mean, it, that's where it also comes in of, um, uh, from the book, the goal is not to get sober for the rest of your life. The goal is just to stay sober for the rest of the day. And then you wake up and get a reprieve and then you do it again the next day. So they would just tour around the world or country around the country. So he would go, um, so how did he get paid? Or I mean, they, they just took donations and stuff like that. Like it was, this his full-time gig. I think it was, and she yeah, was, still it was working. It was for him, and she was working. I think they had some original money from the Rockefeller, and then I believe that they had, uh, at that time, a, a small profit from the sales of the big book that they were using for small stipends, I believe. Um, but he was still, he. they said he had just terrible depression. And it just carry him for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah, and this time he says he would, he would, all, Bill would, Bill always concentrated heavily on walking and breathing as an antidote to depression. When he could, he would walk five miles a day on the wooded trails around Bedford Hills. That's cool. That's in Cleveland area. I would, I used to be ashamed of my condition and I didn't want to talk about it, but in recent years I freely confessed I'm a depressive and that attracts other depressives to me. Working on them had helped me a great deal. In fact, it helped me more than it did them. And that's the, that's the whole premise of, you know, the, that part of the program is that, um, and that's why he was pacing so, you know, fervently in that lobby is that he knew that by sharing what he is going through and, and talking with another alcoholic and in attempts to help them, that helped him more than it usually helps the other person in the end of the so this guy goes on and he, uh, the rest of his life, just, um, being the champion of AA. Right. And then he, I guess Carl Young sent him a letter. So, holy crap. Yeah. And so it's, um, there was a, an alcoholic, um, from the description in the book of called Roland Hazard okay. and he was a hopeless, you know, um, and so he went and visited Carl Jung, and I believe he stayed with him and studied and learned everything from him for a year. Okay. And wow. Um, and so uh, he worked with Carl Jung, and and uh, he stayed with him from a year. He would do anything to stay sober. And I think as soon as he got back from there, like the next day, he was drunk. And he's like, oh, wow. "This is uh, this is absolutely absurd." You know, this, you know, do so I, Carl Young was trying to help this young man. Yeah, I mean, do I need like a bodyguard with me? Do I need um, something, you know, somebody to keep an eye on me 24 seven. Um, and then that's where, you know, they started, you know, um, that's where it came out that, you know, that he had to have some type of psychic change in order to recover um, from alcoholism, a new, um, you know, outlook towards life. But that Buchanan, it says he helped. Bill too. Now that Frank Buchanan is gone and I realize more than ever what we owe to him, I wish I could have sought him out in recent years to tell him our appreciation. So there again, back to the point of like surrounding yourselves with people that have this similar issue, this, this recipe for success, Bill Wilson knew like even Carl Young of all people right. I mean, said yeah. that fellowship with other people that are going through the same hell is uh, it's going to be what saved it's him. The answer, yeah. 
And I believe he spent, I think it was a year with him in Europe, I believe. So they were talking about how this, how alcoholism was uh, psychological, uh, emotional, and they were trying to figure out like vitamin B3. They're trying to think of all these different, uh, is it blood, low blood sugar, um, insulin issues. Um, but they were trying to uh, think of like niacin. Bill was excited that niacin was uh, helpful. Anyways, um, but I think to our original point that his ability to uh, channel all of that incredible intelligence and desire to be a friend to others and want to see the best in other people was an impact that would last generations. Oh, I mean, it, just his energy. And if, if you read, if, you know, take the time to read the, uh, the big book, some of his descriptions of, you know, of life in general and what, alcoholics go through how it affects their family how the family reacts employers react what it's like you know people are like uh, as they go through alcoholism um you know that mental obsession and the physical allergy of the two things that they they talk about also in the book is that you know it's um it's not only you know it's mentally you know they can't really describe why they fell off the wagon but it's that you know allergy to alcohol where you know they uh, they have one drink and they just simply can't stop. The definition really of an alcoholic is not really necessarily somebody that drinks every day. It's more so that once you know once you start drinking, you can't stop. And so that explains a lot of you know um, Dr. Bob or you know Bill saying you know I'm I'm just gonna go get the tickets uh, and he stops in the bar and he can't stop. He's not coming out of there unless they drag him out of there. And so many people have probably said, Hey, I'll be home in an hour. They, you know, I'm just gonna have one. And, um, six hours later, they're still at the bar and they have, you know, generally zero idea of why they did it. And his wife, Lois was by his side the whole time. Right. And on January 24, it was his 53rd wedding anniversary. Lois and Bill's anniversary, and he died at 11.30 that night. Whatever happened, it doesn't say, whatever happened to his wife after that? Did she just, was she a champion? I don't, you know, I don't know that. That's a good question. What a full life. My goodness. Oh, I mean, and we're just reading about it. Can you imagine? Yeah, living it. Living it or experiencing it. You know, I mean, seeing some of the episodes that he went through were brutal. And then... Like even after he started it, it was it was not easy to live those last thirty five years. Like obviously seeing people that are struggling and at the same time struggling to get the book in their hand. 